is precious. That's what the Bible said. Uh, the word precious in that verse is actually a noun, meaning that's one of his names. And the word itself means and speaks of his value being so great that if he were removed, he could not be replaced. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Take your Bible and turn to James chapter 1, the book of James chapter 1. Let's pick up where we left off last Wednesday night in our Bible study. And let's notice verse 26, 27. And let's think tonight on what kind of religion do you have? Would you stand as we honor the public reading of His Word? And let's read it together. And let's open our hearts to it tonight. And, and let's ask the Lord to teach us some wonderful things from His Word. Verse 26, verse 27 of James 1 the Bible said, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious, first latter part of verse 26, this man's religion is vain. And verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God. It's all about religion. Thank you, may be seated. Let's think tonight about what kind of religion do we have. James talks about two kinds of religion. Let's find out which category we fall into tonight. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you tonight that you are all that you have declared yourself to be in your word. And Father, the more we learn of you, and as Janice said, the more we trust you, the more we do declare and understand and feel in our heart something of your preciousness. Now, we thank you for your precious word, and we ask you, Lord, tonight that you might teach us and help us to glean from the word of God things that will help us. May our lives be spoken to and challenged tonight by the truth of God. Make our time of Bible study profitable tonight. Help us, Lord, to grow in, our, in the grace and in the knowledge of the precious one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So fill me now with the Holy Spirit. Open every heart, every mind to the truth of God, and we'll bless you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Occasionally through the years when I have witnessed to someone, spoken to someone about their need of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've been asked the question, what religion are you? Or what is your religion? And I know what they mean when they ask me, what is your religion or what religion are you? What they're really asking me is, what denomination am I? You see, the word religion and the ideal of religion has become closely connected to our denominational labels, whether we're Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist, Church of God, whatever it may be. Well, in James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, James is talking about religion. And the word religion is found five times in the New Testament. Two of those occurrences are right here in our text. And the word uh, religious is found twice in the New Testament. One of those occasions is in our text. But when the Bible talks about religion, what is it talking about? Well, let me say at the very beginning, just by way of introduction before we get in our text tonight, that when the Bible talks about religion, it is not 
talking about denominations. Now, we may think of that when we think of religion. What religion are you? I am Baptist. What religion are you? I'm Church of Christ or whatever. But when you look in the Bible and you look at the subject of religion in the Bible, it has nothing to do with denominations. It is not talking about denominations. Now, I've met a few through the years that put more stock and their denominational label than they did anything else. In fact, I think of a story that I read one time about three churches in this little town, little bitty town, and there were three churches in the town. There was a Methodist church, there was a Presbyterian church, and there was a Baptist church. It was a small town, and all the churches were so small that they were struggling to exist. So they finally decided that the only way they could survive was to merge the three churches in the one. So they all came together to discuss the merger, and during the discussion, the question came up what they would name the church. And so they discussed that matter, and there's a lot of dissension in it. And finally, after much discussion and much dissension, one suggested they call it a Christian church. They said, instead of calling it a Baptist church, instead of calling it a Methodist church, instead of calling it a Presbyterian, let's just call it a Christian church. Well, there's one fellow that got up, he jumped up, and he said, now, wait a minute. He said, I was born a Baptist, I grew up a Baptist, and I've been nothing else but a Baptist, and nobody's going to make a Christian out of me. Well, there are some that put more stock in their denominational labels than anything else. But I think about it in a book called Absolute Confusion by George Barna, a collection of surveys and things that he had done to reveal religious trends in our country today. He found that traditional church affiliations are becoming less significant to people. He found that two-thirds of all adults, 62%, believe that it does not matter what religious faith you follow because all faiths teach similar lessons about life. Well, I would not agree with that assessment, and I believe that it, that it has dangerous implications. However, I will say that there is something more important than our denomination label or the denomination that we belong to. I've been asked before, if I was not a Baptist, what would I be? Brother Ken, you're a Baptist. If you were not a Baptist, what would you be? And my answer has always been very simple. I would not be anything different than I am tonight because I want you to understand something tonight. I am a Baptist by choice and I am a Baptist by conviction, but my faith and practice is not based upon what the Baptists believe, but on what the Bible says. I do not live by the Baptist confession of faith. I live by what God says in His eternal Word. So I wouldn't be any different tonight than I would be if I was not a Baptist because I believe this Bible and I try to follow this Bible. But what does the Bible mean when it talks about religion? Look at the word religion there. It's found twice in our text. And the word religion, as you find there in the text, speaks of the external observance of our faith. When the Bible talks about religion and when James talks about religion, he is talking about that which is outward. He is talking about that which is external. He is talking about the outward and the external observance of our faith. And the word itself implies that there is something that has happened internally and it's being manifested externally in our life through our acts and through our deeds and through our service. Religion and being religious always has the ideal of something we do. Again, our acts, our deeds, our behavior, our service, and our works. 
But again, the ideal is much more than what we do. Again, the ideal is that something has happened on the inside. And the result is there is something happening on the outside. So when the Bible talks about religion, it is talking about the outward and the external uh, uh, observance of our faith. If you've been saved, something happened on the inside. And if something happened on the inside, it will reveal itself on the outside. That's religion. That's being religious. The internal becomes external. What has happened on the inside manifests itself on the outside. Now, when James talks about religion, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about those who have experienced something on the inside that has affected their acts and their deeds and their service on the outside. Well, let's look at James 1, 26 and 27. And you'll notice that he describes two types of religion. We see a religion that is condemned, and you see a religion that is commended. Now, let's look at these two, and notice what James has to say. The first one I want you to notice is this. James, first of all, describes a vain religion. You notice in verse 26, James describes a vain religion. Notice, he said, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now, notice carefully the five last words, the last five words in verse 26. This man's religion is vain. James is talking about vain religion. Now, what is vain religion? When you look at verse 26, you'll see that James gives a twofold description of vain religion. Notice these, notice these with me. First of all, we see that he describes vain religion as having appearance without reality. He describes a vain religion in verse 26, and he says this vain religion has appearance, but it has no reality. Notice again the verse. James says, if any man among you seem to be religious, and I put the emphasis on the word seem. Listen to it again. If any man among you seem to be religious. This man that James describes in verse 26 has the appearance of being religious. He seems to be religious. And from all appearances, this man that has been described in verse 26 would be a very religious man. This would be the kind of individual that people around us or people in the world would say, now there is a religious person. That is a religious man. That is a religious woman. It'd be the kind of person down at the workplace if someone was talking and they'd say, now, if you want to talk religion, you ought to talk to so-and-so. That's the man to talk to. He's a very religious man. Or it might be said of someone in, by their neighbors that so-and-so always goes to church on Sunday. He's always doing something down the church. He is a very religious man. That's the kind of man that he's describing here, a man that appears to be religious. But yet, when you look more closely at what he has to say, James is actually describing a man that not only appears to be religious, but this is a man who actually thinks himself to be religious. Underscore the word seem for just a moment. I emphasize it, but underscore it just a moment. If any man seem to be religious, the word that is used there and translated seem is a word that literally means to think. And the implication, therefore, being that he seems. 
to be religious. In other words, what James says, he's talking about a man that, that thinks he is religious. And the implication being because he thinks he is religious, he appears to be religious. Now again, here is a religious man. It's a vain religion, but here is a man that thinks he is religious. But yet when you look at what James has to say, he makes it very clear there's a difference between thinking you are religious and actually being religious. For example, one of the emphasis that you find in the book of James is that what a person is is going to be revealed in their life. James, the heart of what James has to say is not so much what we do, but who we are. And he makes it very clear throughout the book of James that who we are or what we are is going to be revealed in our life. Now, when we get to chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, you have a passage of Scripture there that Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a lot of problems with. And Martin Luther, a great Bible scholar and a great leader of the church, he had problems with James 2, 14 through 26 because he thought James was teaching that a man must work in order to be saved. But as we get there, we'll find out that James is not saying that a man must work to be saved, but he's stating that if a person, in a nutshell, that if a person has something on the inside, it'll manifest itself on the outside. In other words, if a man has real faith, there'll be works in his life. And James is saying that if there is no works in your life, it's a good indication you don't have faith. But if you have faith, there will be works in your life. He's talking about works being the evidence of our salvation. That is, we have something, and it reveals itself. Now, James has the same idea and the same argument in verse 26 of chapter 1. But in this case... He's not only saying that if you have the real thing, it'll manifest itself, but he's also saying that if you don't have the real thing, it will manifest itself. Just like real faith will reveal itself, vain religion will reveal itself as well. For you notice that he describes this man in verse 26 as one that bridleth not his tongue. Look at that. He said, if any man among you seem to be religious thinks that he is religious, has the appearance to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue. He's describing someone that does not keep a tight rein on his mouth, that he's someone that is unrestrained in his speaking, that he doesn't care about what he says, he doesn't care about who he talks about, and he doesn't care about what he says about the people that he talks about. He bridleth not his tongue. Now, when I read that statement, I think of something Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34. And there Jesus made a statement that the mouth is a tattletale on the heart. There in Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said to the Pharisees, O generation of vipers, how can ye speak evil, being evil, speak good things? How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Now, what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying what came out of the mouth simply revealed what was in the heart. He's saying this is what you are on the inside. You're evil on the inside. And because you're evil on the inside, then what you say reveals that you are evil on the inside. I heard about one woman that was known for gossiping, and she came to the altar. In a revival meeting, she said, Preacher, I want to lay my tongue on the altar. 
And he said, Sister, this altar bench is about 12 feet long. Lay as much on it as you can. Amen. Well, James is talking about somebody that has a tongue problem. And he describes this person as, as thinking they are religious and having the appearance that they are religious, but what they do reveals otherwise. He describes someone, again, that is unrestrained in their words. They have no discipline in their speech. They have no discipline in what they say. And the idea that it's behind here is that they're talking about others. They put others down. They could care less what they say. They don't care if it hurts them or not. They're unbridled in their language. And James says that the unbridled tongue reveals that their religion is vain. Vain religion. This man thinks he is religious, but his words, his actions, his deeds, how he behaves reveals that he's lacking in reality. He's not what he thinks he is. He is not what he appears to be, and the tongue is the evidence of that. Now, you listen to me carefully tonight. A person can come to church on Sunday morning dressed up in their Sunday going to meet and duds, and sit on one of these pews with a pious and religious look and not be religious. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Or has some goonie got you tonight? Are you listening to me? A person can come to church on Sunday and look religious and act religious and not really be a religious person. If you really want to measure a person, don't measure his religion by how he is on Sunday. Check him out on Monday if you really want to know what he's like. If you really want to understand a person's religion, if he's religious, then listen to him on Monday. Watch him on Monday. Not listen to him on Sunday and watch him on Sunday. But in the case of the man in verse 26, he has the appearance of being religious. He even thinks he's religious, but the evidence is against him. He thinks he's in relig religious, but in reality, he is far from the ideal. His religion is vain. And so he talks about this religion, that it has an appearance, but it's without reality. But look at something else. And there, you could say there are many that are like that. They appear to be one thing, but they're really something else. But there's something else he says about this vain religion. Not only do you see in this vain religion appearance without reality, but you also see in this vain religion activity without results. He thinks he's religious, but the way he lives is evidence that he's not religious. And the very fact that it talks about him being religious, it would suggest that this is a man that is not lacking in activity. This is a man that appears to be religious. This is a man, you might say, that goes to Sunday school on Sunday, He's in the services on Sunday morning, Sunday night. Could even be in, in the services on Wednesday night. He may sing in the choir. He may do special music. He may be sitting on a committee or a board. Surely he would be one of the wise men in the Christmas play. But this is a man that is, has activities. Not that he's lacking in activity. It's not that, act, that, that activities are absent in his life. The problem is there is an absence of results from his activities. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 26. He not only describes this man as one that bridleth not his tongue, but he also says in verse 26 that he deceiveth his own heart and that this man's religion is vain. See that in the latter part of verse 26? The word deceiveth that is used here is a word that actually means and literally means to cheat. 
This man cheateth himself. This man who thinks he's religious, appears to be religious, but in reality is not religious, this man deceiveth himself. This man cheats himself. And he says his religion is vain. The word vain there means without results. It does not achieve the intended goal. Now, you remember last week in our study, we noticed in verse 25 that James talked about a doer of the word. You could say that is a man that has real religion. But he stated in verse 25 that a doer of the word shall be blessed in his deeds. You see that in James 1, 25? He says that real religion results in blessings. But in verse 26, he tells us that vain religion cheats a person out of those blessings. That vain religion is one in which there are no spiritual results. Vain religion is one in which there are no spiritual blessings. A person may think they are religious, and they may have the appearance of being religious, but yet their life is the evidence that they're not religious, and the result is they are cheated out of the blessings that religion is intended to bring. I want to remind you now that mere appearance never results in spiritual blessings. God wants to bless us. This man, James 1, 25, shall be blessed in his deed. God wants to bless us. But just appearing to be religious is not the pathway to blessings. Mere appearance never results in spiritual blessings. In fact, just mere appearance cheats you of those blessings. You deceive yourself. You cheat yourself of all that God has for you as a believer. You believe God wants to bless us tonight, amen? That's what this whole book is about telling us what God wants to do in our life, but yet when we appear to be religious and we're not religious, I don't care what kind of front we put on, we will not reap the blessings of the Lord. The honor code for the U.S. Military Academy at West Point is as follows. A cadet does not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate anyone who does. And that honor code is so stringent I am told that even one violation during any time, during the four years of a cadet study, even the day before graduation, requires automatic expulsion of the guilty one. Well, may I say tonight that real religion does not lie, it does not cheat, and it does not steal. But in the case of vain religion, one cheats themselves. And the result is they are expelled and there is an expulsion of the blessings of God in their life. That's vain religion. James in verse 26 says, this man's religion is vain. It will not result. It is vain. It is vain religion. But look at the verse 27. He not only talks about vain religion, but in verse 27, he talks about what I want to call virtuous religion. Look what he said in verse 27. Pure religion. Verse 26, he talks about vain religion, but now he talks about pure religion. And undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In verse 26, he talks about what man thinks about his religion. But in verse 27, he talks about what God 
thinks about our religion. In verse 26, he talks about someone who thinks they are religious. But in verse 27, he describes a religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father. He's talking about what God sees. He talks about how God measures religion, not how we measure religion, but a religion that is before God, a religion that is acceptable to God. Now notice, he calls this religion a pure religion. The word pure that he uses there speaks of that which is clean. And it refers basically to our motives, that there is no uncleanness in our motives or impurities in our motives, but our motives are pure. Our motives are clean. He also describes this kind of religion as being undefiled, pure and undefiled before God. The word defiled or undefiled there means to be without stain. The word that comes from was, uh, had the picture of a garment being stained. Undefiled is that there is no stain there. That it's been kept clean. It's been kept right. It's to be without stain. Well, just like he described in verse 26, vain religion manifests itself. Now this pure religion and this undefiled religion before God, it will manifest itself as, as well. If you have the wrong kind of religion, it shows up in your life. But if you have the right kind of religion, it also shows up in your life. In other words, whatever's on the inside, good or bad, is going to come out of us one way or the other. And whatever we are on the inside will be revealed on the outside. Now, he talks about this virtuous religion, it being pure and it being undefiled. And he talks about what is pure and he talks about what is undefiled. Notice here. You notice that he talks about this virtuous religion, first of all, as being one of practical service. He talks about this kind of religion that is pure before God. And he, so noticed, and he describes it as being one of service, being very practical service. For example, in verse 26, we saw that the motive is self-centered. He's thinking about himself. He thinks he's religious. So his mind is on himself, what he thinks about himself. But in verse 27, we see that virtuous religion is pure. That the motive is not self-centered, but others becomes the focus of this kind of religion. In verse 26, he brought not his tongue. You have someone that is hurting other people. But in verse 27, you have a virtuous type religion, and you have someone whose focus is on others, and you find them helping other people. Not hurting, but helping other people. Now, notice what he said. James talks about pure religion is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Now, I said earlier that religion has to do with service, has to do with what we do on the outside because something has happened on the inside. It's to manifest itself on the outside in our acts, in our deeds, in our behavior, and in our service. So religion, I don't care how you cut it, slice it, it involves service. Well, in that statement there in James 127, we see the service of true religion. James talks about a service to orphans, the fatherless, and to widows there. 
Now, James is not limiting service to just this class of people, but what he's doing is pointing out a certain class of people that has specific and special needs in their life. In those days, in Bible days, there were many orphans and there were many widows. And in those days, you didn't have welfare. In those days, you didn't have Medicare. In those days, you didn't have a lot of the social programs that we have today. So an orphan or a widow in those days were in very, very difficult things. But he talks about visiting these orphans and visiting these widows. You see that? Visiting the orphans of the fathers and the widows. Notice the word visit there. It speaks more than just dropping by and saying, hello, how you doing today? Just riding by and thought I'd stick my head in, chat with you a little while and fellowship with you for a few minutes. No, it means much more than that. The word that is used here means to care, to exercise oversight, to help. The verb in our text comes from a noun that gives us the word bishop, which is an overseer. The same thought is found in 1 Peter 5, 2, when the pastor or bishop is told to feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. When James talks about visiting the fatherless and visiting the widows, he's talking about caring for the fatherless and caring for the widows. He's talking about taking the oversight of the widows and the oversight of the orphans to help them. Help them when in their affliction. The word affliction there speaks of the pressure that comes from one's circumstances. Again, it was quite different in those days than it is today. We have a country in which you have a lot of programs you can draw help from during times of need or whatever like it. But in those days, you didn't have it. So you can imagine the pressure that came from their circumstances. And James says this is what real religion's all about. The religion that is pure before God is the kind of religion that cares about other people. It's the kind of religion that reaches out to other people. It's the kind of religion that helps other people during difficult times in their life and helps meet needs in their life. Again, vain religion only thinks of themselves, but virtuous religion thinks of other people. I mentioned in verse 26 that vain religion cheats a person out of blessings. But may I say the opposite is true about virtuous religion. Vain religion will cheat you, but virtuous religion will enrich you. Virtuous religion will always result in blessings. When you live for others and your life is not centered around your own little world and me, my four, and no more, but you live a Christ life that looks out at others and cares about others and you want to help others in their difficult times, that kind of life will be rich in the blessings of the Lord. I think about a story that I found a couple of times in the commentaries I've been reading on the book of James. And apparently these two different authors had read each other, so one barred one, whatever like that. But anyway, the story in there was about a preacher that preached on Sunday about heaven. And the next day, he was met by a wealthy member of his church. And the member said to him, he said, Pastor, that was a great sermon on heaven yesterday, but you didn't tell us where heaven is. And the pastor said, Ah, I'm glad of the opportunity that I have this morning to tell you where heaven is. He said, I've just returned from the hilltop up yonder. And in that cottage, there is a member of our church. She's a widow with two little children. She is sick in one bed, and the two children are sick in the other bed. 
She doesn't have anything in the house, no coal, no bread, no meat, and no milk. And he said, if you will buy a few groceries and then go up there yourself and say, my sister, I have brought these provisions in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then ask for a Bible and read Psalm 23 and then go down on your knees and pray. And if you don't see heaven before you get through, I'll pay the bill. Well, the next day he saw the church member and the fellow said to him, he said, Pastor, he said, I saw heaven and spent 15 minutes there as sure as you're listening. Now, if you've ever lived for others and poured your life into others and you have reached out to others in a time of need, then you know what he meant when he talked about I saw heaven and I saw spent 15 minutes in heaven as sure as you're listening. You know what I'm talking about. I remember a number of years ago, I thought about this this afternoon. I hadn't thought about this in ages. But I thought about this evening when I was thinking through this text. I remember when I was pastoring in North Carolina, in Boone, North Carolina. It's around Christmas time, and the church that I pastored there, we decided that as a church that we were going to find a family that really had some needs in their life. And we were going to do something for them to give them a good Christmas. And so we checked with several agencies, and we've learned of a family that was in dire need. I think there, there was, I know there was, there was a mom and dad and three children, two little girls and one boy. And we learned about their needs, the circumstances, and whatever there. And so what we did, we got the names of those children, and we got the ages of those children, their clothes size, and all that, and we went out and bought them toys and clothes and food for the whole family. And so we, we, we literally had a station wagon full of stuff. We wrapped them all up. We wrapped the, dress, the dresses we had for this child, toys we had for this child. We wrapped them up in individual boxes and put their name on the, uh, each child's name on that box and mom and dad as well as all the other stuff that we had. Put them in the back of the station wagon and me and one of the deacons from the church delivered the gifts. And again, the whole back end, back end, back seat of that station wagon was literally filled with gifts. But we went to, went to the family's home there and I knocked on the door. And the door opened, and out popped three little dirty faces. And it was a little girl. She looked like she was about 12. And then right under her was a little boy, and right under her was a little girl. And their faces just as dirty as they could be. And they opened the door, and their little old clothes was dirty, and they were just as ragged as they could be. And I asked if their mom and dad was there. And I remember the oldest little girl said to me, said, no, Daddy had to take Mommy to the hospital. Well, we told them who we were and told them that we had some Christmas presents for them. And so we went out to the car and got and started unloading those gifts. When we stepped into that house, Dan Church was with me. He was, a, he was a big old deacon. Tommy and Patty know exactly where it was. You go right under the Blue Ridge Parkway, start off the Wilkes County side, and one of those little houses is sitting right up on that hill. And I, we walked in there, and it, it, when we walked in the house, it literally broke our heart. The only piece of furniture in that, in that living room was an old car seat that they were using for a couch. And there was an old coal stove there that they were using to heat the house. There was nothing else in that room. Just old wood floors, just an old run-down house. They didn't even have a tree, a Christmas tree, so we piled all the gifts up in the corner. And I would say tonight, I wouldn't trade you a million dollars for the memories that I have even tonight of what I saw in the little eyes of those kids. That when they first opened the door, they seemed so lifeless, but they were now dancing with joy and excitement. 
And we stack them up in piles, and we say, this one belongs to so-and-so. And the little kids would say, that's mine, that's mine. And we piled them all up in the corner and told them not to open them up till Christmas Day. We got the groceries out of the car in the kitchen. It was an old refrigerator covered with rust. And it was an old stove that looked like an old hot plate. And that was about the extent of an old table sitting in the kitchen. And that was the extent what was in the kitchen. And we opened the refrigerator, and the only thing on the inside of the refrigerator was a jug of water. It looked like a milk, a, a milk jug, and it was full of water. That was the only thing that was in that refrigerator. But we filled that refrigerator with food. We packed that refrigerator full of food and still had boxes of stuff, dry goods and canned goods, sitting out on the outside, and we sit them down beside the refrigerator there. And I remember when we left that day, those kids were digging in those, those boxes, and they were pulling them out. Look what's here. Look at this. Look at that. Look at that. They were so excited. We went back a couple of weeks later. Well, before I left that day, I, I wrote a note. I took a piece of paper and wrote a note, and I simply said, we wanted you to know that we love you, and we wanted you to have a Merry Christmas. I signed my name and put the church name under it so they'd know where I was from. Me and the same deacon went back about two weeks later, knocked on the door, and this time, the door slightly opened, and a man's face appeared in the door. And he said to me, what do you want? And I said, my name is Ken Trivet, and I'm from the Bible Way Baptist Church. This is literally what he did. He jerked open that door, reached out and grabbed me by the hand, and literally pulled me in the living room. And he started hollering, honey, honey, come here. That preacher's here. That preacher's here. She came out, and they both just over and over and over thanked me for what we had done. One would shake my hand and thank me, and then the other one grabbed it, shake my hand and thank me. When they let go, the other would get it again and shake my hand and thank me. And they just kept going on and on. But this is what the fellow said to me. When we pulled in, he hollered his wife, said, Honey, come in. That preacher's here. And then he turned and looked at me and said something to me that has never been said to me before. He said, you're a famous man around here. That's the only time I've ever been famous. That's what he said to me. You're a famous man around here. But they went on and on and on, and wife cried, and they thanked me, and they thanked me, and they thanked me, and the kids was over there tugging at their mom and dad's arm, and you could hear them say, that's the man that brought my dresses by. That's the man that brought my toys by. And they just went on and on and on. But I'll tell you what was a blessing. Before I left that little house that afternoon, I had the privilege of leading both that mom and dad to Jesus Christ. I promise you one thing. is a little old block house sitting on the bank. They had nothing to their name, but I spent some time in heaven in that little old house. And some of you know what I'm talking about. That's what James is talking about. That religion which is acceptable and pure before God is one that lives for others. Can I get an amen right there? But look at something else that he talks about in the story. And the final thing, not only does he describe virtuous religion as one of practical service, but he also describes it as one of personal separation. Notice what he said in verse 27. It is not only a pure religion, which is manifested in visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, but it is also undefiled religion, which is manifested in this individual keeping himself unspotted from the world. You see, the word unspotted there has basically the same meaning of the word undefiled. Different word, but it has basically the same meaning the word undefiled means to be without stain. 
The word unspotted means to be without blemish. Basically the same thing, to be without spot or stain or blemish. And he says in verse 27 that we're to keep ourselves unspotted. And tense there is to keep on keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Now, what is he talking about when he talks about the world? When he talks about the world, he is talking about a system that is opposed to God and going in the opposite direction of God. It's like God, this is the direction he's going. But the world is going in totally the opposite direction. And the world is a system of things that is seeking, we're trying to go this direction, but the world's trying to turn me around and get me to go its direction. That's what temptation's all about. That's what the flesh is all about. So there's this system of things as opposed to God and going in an opposite direction. And he says in verse 26, don't let the world blemish you or stain you. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Verse 26 talks about vain religion. And in verse 26, in vain religion, you see someone that is stained by an unbridled tongue. But in virtuous religion, in verse 27, that person is unspotted. There is personal separation. I think of what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, and I'll give you this and we'll close. He said in Romans 12, verse 2, and be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed. There's the word conform, and there's the word transform. One writer translated the words, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. What is he talking about? He's saying, don't let the world influence the way you live or think. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold and make you one of its little puppets. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Instead of being conformed, be a transform. I love the idea behind the word transform. It literally means to go through a metamorphosis. It would be like, oh, what was the, the Incredible Hulk? That's what it was. You remember that show? The Incredible Hulk? You know how he was. Here's this little old skinny doctor. And when he got angry, he ended up looking like me. You, I mean as far as size and things are concerned. He went through a metamorphosis. He went through a transformation. He said, don't let the world make you one of its, one of its own, but let God transform you and make you into one of his. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a religion in which there is personal separation. So James talks about in verse 26, vain religion. Verse 27, virtuous religion. So let me just ask you a question when I'm th- when I, uh, in conclusion tonight. What kind of religion do you have? Do you have a verse 26 religion? Or do you have a verse 27 religion? Do you have a kind of religion where you appear to be religious, but yet the evidence is not there? Do you have the kind of religion that is vain, does not produce, or do you have the kind of religion that produces and manifests itself in service? Vain religion, virtuous religion. Take your prayer sheet tonight. Let's look at it. We're going to have prayer time in closing. Our missionary of the week, our church of the week, and then those that are in the hospital. Our missionary of the week is Jerry and Maxine Smith serving in Mexico with World Vision Baptist Mission. Let's remember the Smiths. Let's remember their work in Mexico. Church of the week is Grace Baptist in Morganton, North Carolina. Uh, Marty Bess is the pastor, but the Marty was here during our Bible conference and has not been at this church very long and doing a great job. We want to remember Marty. We want to remember the church and be praying for them. 
Our hospitalist tonight is Joanne Wyndham. Joanne is doing much better, not much better, but she's doing better over the past couple of days. And uh, they had really given her no hope uh, the first part of the week, but she's, she's doing much better today. And so I want to continue to pray for Joanne. She's still got a long road to go. Miss O'Neill is at Park Ridge Hospital. Uh, she has some kind of blockage, maybe a stone or some kind of obstruction in a bile duct there, and they're going to go into bar and remove the stone, whatever it is. And she's at Park Ridge Hospital. Uh, John Worley, most of us know him as Max. Max Worley is at Park Ridge Hospital. Also, Willie Hol- Holcomb is at Health South and recovering from knee surgery. And then, of course, Kim's dad had uh, bypass surgery. He was moved into a room this afternoon, Mike, Kim, and Marcia's father. And then, of course, our daughter-in-law is at East Ridge. She's uh, trying to keep her from going into labor. So remember, Tanya, be praying for her. Also, we want to remember our nation and be praying for all that's going on in our country. And uh, these are uncertain times for our nation, but we want to remember them and, and keep all the things in mind that are going on and different things like that. Let's remember our building program. Be meeting tomorrow with uh, architect and everyone. They're flying in from Charlotte. Be here for a few hours tomorrow to share with me some things. So I'm excited about seeing what they put together from our last meeting and uh, hopefully here in about two more meetings with them. I've got to meet with them again on the 13th. And hopefully by then I'll have something that I can bring to you and to put before you. But let's remember our building program and all the things going on. All of you that will, let's come and gather around the altar. Let's take this, these matters to the Lord. Let's remember our missionary of the week, our church of the week, our hospital, our folks in the hospital, and all the special needs on the back side of your little yellow sheet there. Let's remember all of these. Let's pray together, will you? Father, in Jesus' name, as we come, we lift up the Smith family to you. We pray for their work in Mexico. We pray for the work of God throughout all of Mexico. But we pray, Lord, particularly for our missionary of the week that you bless their work and bless their service. Thank you for...